Welcome to the October 29th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will review a study that uncovers a role for CXCL4 in inducing the two hallmark features of primary myelofibrosis, bone marrow fibrosis, and inflammation. We will next examine how genetic predisposition an altered gut microbiome can trigger the development of precursor BALL in mice. And finally, learn how SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins activate complement by engaging the alternative pathway, a novel finding which raises the prospect for targeted therapy of COVID-19-associated microangiopathy. Our first topic is a study entitled Increased CXCL4 expression in hematopoietic cells links inflammation and progression of bone marrow fibrosis in myeloproliferative neoplasm by Gleitz and Leimkuller from Erasmus Medical Center Cancer Institute in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, Dugord from the RWTH Aachen University and Heidelberg University in Germany, and international colleagues. Primary myelofibrosis, abbreviated PMF, is a myeloproliferative neoplasm that arises from clonal proliferation of hematopoietic stem cells, or HSCs, and leads to progressive bone marrow fibrosis. This results in extramedullary hematopoiesis, bone marrow failure, and ultimately death. While HSC mutations involved in PMF have been extensively investigated, the sequential events leading to the transformation of normal stromal cells to fibrosis-driving cells remain elusive. Dissecting these underlying mechanisms is important, as this has potential to identify new molecular targets for novel therapeutics. Currently, the only cure for myelofibrosis is allogeneic bone marrow transplant, which remains a high-risk procedure. It has become increasingly clear over the past several years that two distinct pathogenic processes contribute to the initiation and progression of PMF. First, HSC acquire mutations resulting in clonal myeloproliferation, and second, the mutant HSC and their progeny exert cell extrinsic effects leading to cytokine and chemokine-driven alterations in non-mutated stromal cells that transform them into fibrosis-driving cells. Recent work has confirmed the long-standing hypothesis that the fibrosis-causing microfibroblasts in the bone marrow are derived from mesenchymal stromal cells. However, the biology of the crosstalk between malignant hematopoietic cells and the fibrosis-causing stromal cells remains poorly understood. To tackle this challenge, the authors used in vitro co-culture experiments, studies on primary bone marrow biopsies from patients and mouse models. They found that mutant HSCs overexpressed multiple CXC chemokines, particularly CXCL4, and could reprogram stromal progenitors as early as 72 hours of co-culture, which included upregulation of genes associated with fibrosis. CXCL4, also known as platelet factor 4, is synthesized by megakaryocytes and is also made by immune and other cells. It was first implicated in the pathogenesis of PMF almost four decades ago. Using marrow samples from patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms and varying degrees of fibrosis, they validated and confirmed that both the intensity of CXCL4 staining and a shift in its spatial distribution from megakaryocytes to include endosteal and paravascular stromal cells marks progression of fibrosis. 
They also dissected the role of CXCL4 by selectively knocking it out in hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells in several mouse models of PMF. They showed that the absence of hematopoietic CXCL4 ameliorates the MPN phenotype and reduces stromal cell activation and marrow fibrosis. This was associated with decreased activation of profibrotic pathways in megakaryocytes and inflammation in fibrosis-driving cells, as well as reduced JAK-STAT activation in both megakaryocytes and stromal cells. The authors conclude that increased CXCL4 expression in MPN has both profibrotic effects and is a mediator of the characteristic inflammation. In an accompanying commentary, Sandeep Gorbaksani from the University of Chicago states that this study advances the field by uncovering the pathways downstream of CXCL4 in PMF and providing evidence that places CXCL4 upstream of many known inducers of inflammation and bone marrow fibrosis. Moreover, the authors show that CXCL4 can positively amplify JAK-STAT signaling, a hallmark of all MPNs. Thus, Gerbaksani notes that CXCL4 emerges as an attractive molecule for developing targeted therapy. One other fascinating observation was that HSC-carrying MPN-associated mutations could globally alter the gene expression profile of stromal cells in as little as 72 hours. Although these data are from an ex vivo experiment, it raises several important questions. First, is this programming irreversible, or does it become imprinted and independent of the mutant HSCs? And if reprogramming of fibrosis-inducing stromal cells can be induced very early, this might occur long before a clinical presentation of the disease. Finally, if confirmed, the study has profound implications on how we think about treating and reversing fibrosis in PMF as it may be difficult to reverse the phenotype of reprogrammed stromal cells through targeting of only one specific pathway. Our second topic today is a study entitled, An Intact Gut Microbiome Protects Genetically Predisposed Mice Against Leukemia, by Carolina Vicente Duenas from the University for Biomedical Research of Salamanca in Spain, and Stefan Janssen and Marina Oldenburg from Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf, Germany, and colleagues. Leukemia is the leading cause of childhood cancer-related mortality worldwide, and precursor B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or pre-BALL, is the most common form of the disease. Many cases of childhood leukemia are caused by a combination of prenatal genetic predispositions, either translocations acquired in utero or a constitutional germline genetic variant, followed by a second cooperating oncogenic event occurring after birth. Studies that screen for the frequency of the first-step mutation have found that as many as 5% of healthy newborns carry pre-leukemic clones. However, only a very small percentage of children born with such pre-leukemic hits develop full-blown leukemia. Although causes are likely to be multifactorial, one theory has been that a dysregulated immune response when exposure to common infections is delayed or to altered microbiota is an important trigger. Prior studies by the authors suggested that exposure to infection is a causal factor in the development of pre-BALL in a mouse model, where deficiency of PAX5 confers inherited susceptibility to leukemia. PAX5 is a transcription factor that regulates B-cell development. 
and heterozygous alterations of Pax5 are the most common target of genetic alterations in pre-BALL in patients. In this new study, the authors again employed Pax5-deficient mice, but now to investigate the role of the gut microbiome. They raised mice in either housing that was specific pathogen-free, also referred to as SPF, or in conventional animal facilities where mice are exposed to common organisms that can infect rodents. Some of these mice were also treated with antibiotics to disturb the microbiome. They confirmed their previous results that Pax5-deficient mice kept under sheltered SPF conditions for the first six weeks of life, and then moved to conventional housing developed pre-BALL. Interestingly, while the gut microbiome changed dramatically upon change in housing, the microbiome of Pax5-deficient mice remained different from wild-type controls in both conditions. This finding indicates that a deficiency in Pax5 itself shapes the gut microbiome. By employing artificial intelligence, they were able to show that genetically predisposed mice can be predicted with high accuracy based only on the composition of their gut microbiome. Remarkably, they also showed that disturbing the microbiome by antibiotic treatment early in life was sufficient to induce leukemia in genetically predisposed mice, even in the absence of exposure to infectious stimuli. Taken together, the data indicate that it is a lack of commensal microbiota rather than the presence of specific bacteria that promotes leukemia in genetically predisposed mice. Vicente Duenas and colleagues suggest that this finding argues against a mere bystander effect, as dysbiosis was observed months prior to disease onset. The authors conclude that future large-scale longitudinal studies from birth onward are required to determine whether targeted microbiome modification in children predisposed to pre-BALL could become a strategy for successful prevention of leukemia. In accompanying commentary, a gut feeling about precursor BALL, and indeed a ROI from the University of Oxford in the UK, states that this study elegantly demonstrates the interplay of genetic predisposition, altered gut microbiome, and delayed infection in the development of pre-BALL in Pax5-deficient mice. She also notes that further studies are warranted in additional pre-leukemic mouse models. However, the current results have exciting epidemiological and public health implications. For example, what are the implications for antibiotic usage in early life, especially in infants with a genetic predisposition to leukemia? And is the gut microbiome altered in all children with a pre-leukemic clone or only in those that will transform to leukemia? Finally, some additional perspectives will be given by a senior author on this study. Hello, dear colleagues. My name is Arndt Borkhardt from the University of Düsseldorf in Germany. And together with my German colleagues Ute Fischer and Stefan Jansen, as well as two key Spanish collaborators, Carolina Vincente Duenas and Isidro Sanchez-Garcia from the University of Salamanca, we asked the question whether the changes of the microbiome trigger or protect against leukemia development in susceptible mouse strains. Since many years, we know that childhood leukemia is frequently initiated before birth during fetal hematopoiesis. A first genetic event leads to the expansion of pre-leukemic B-cell clones. These pre-leukemic clones give rise to clinically overt leukemia only in a tiny fraction of those carriers.
it's a mechanistic level drivers for such a conversion from pre-leukemic to the leukemic states are not well understood. Same holds true for inherited germline variants in genes like ETV6 or Pax5 or ICOS. Such variants, also associated with familiar occurrence of ALL, show a high but still incomplete penetrance, meaning that not all carriers will develop the disease. So, in our research, we have a long-standing interest to understand better the complex interplay between genetic susceptibility and progressional driver events. Some years ago, we could show that unspecific infectious exposure of genetically leukemia-susceptible animals could trigger development of the disease. Now we ask the question whether gut microbiota may play a role in these processes and our findings will be summarized in this podcast. I would like to mention that our research rely on a seminal study from Josef Stottier and colleagues also published in Blood in 2017 in which the authors demonstrated how gut microbes regulate normal steady-state hematopoiesis. They also showed the deep impact of broad-spectrum antibiotic treatment. Our results in leukemia-prone animals also point towards a protective effect of commensal gut microbiota or conversely, the negative impact of antibiotics in these animals. We certainly hope that our research may add a piece to the puzzle how to prevent this most common form of cancer in children and at some day. Our final topic today is a study entitled Direct Activation of the Alternative Complement Pathway by SARS-CoV-2 Spike Proteins is Blocked by Factor D Inhibition by Jia Yu, Xuan Yuan, Hang Chen, and colleagues at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. The newly discovered coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is a highly contagious respiratory virus that causes the disease COVID-19. To date, the current pandemic has resulted in over 1 million deaths globally. Well-described complications of COVID-19 include refractory thrombosis, thrombotic microangiopathies, stroke, respiratory failure, renal injury, and myocardial infarction, but only occur in a minority of patients. It remains unclear why only a subset of SARS-CoV-2-infected patients acquire such severe endothelial damage, affecting multiple organs. One hypothesis is that excessive complement activation may be responsible. Other complementopathies, such as atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome and catastrophic antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, share many clinical features with severe COVID-19 infection. In fact, off-label use of complement inhibitors is ongoing in COVID-19, including both phase two and three studies targeting components of the complement cascade. However, Many gaps remain in our understanding of why and how SARS-CoV-2 induces an apparent endotheliopathy, including the mechanism by which the virus engages complement, and which of the three pathways of complement activation is primarily responsible. The coronavirus genome encodes for four main structural proteins, spike, membrane, envelope, nucleocapsid, 
also called N, as well as other accessory proteins that facilitate replication and entry into cells. The spike proteins, consisting of the S1 and S2 subunits, cover the surface of coronaviruses and serve as entry proteins for infection by binding to glycosaminoglycans, such as heparin sulfate, and silated N-glycans, which further facilitates the interaction with entry receptors and membrane fusion with host cells. SARS-CoV-2 uses the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 as its entry receptor, which is widely expressed on lung type 2 alveolar cells, enterocytes, arterial and venous endothelial cells, and arterial smooth muscle cells in most organs. Here, this team used an in vitro system employing recombinant COVID-19 proteins. They showed that the spike protein subunits, but not N-protein, directly activated the alternative pathway of complement, also known as the AP, by binding heparin sulfate on the cell surface. They were able to inhibit complement activation using either a small molecule inhibitor of the serine protease factor D, which cleaves factor B to form AP convertase, or a monoclonal antibody that blocks C5, which is otherwise cleaved to generate C5B, which initiates formation of the membrane attack complex. In these in vitro studies, factor D inhibition was more impressive at inhibiting complement activation compared to the effect of the anti-C5 monoclonal antibody, since the factor D blocker works earlier in the cascade to shut down the AP. Interestingly, this team also demonstrated that addition of factor H which is an important negative regulator of the AP, neutralizes the effects of the spike proteins by blocking AP activation. The authors conclude that SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins convert non-activator surfaces to activator surfaces by preventing the inactivation of the cell surface APC convertase. Activation of the alternative pathway of complement may explain many of the clinical manifestations of COVID-19 that are similar to other complement-driven diseases. Moreover, these results suggest that complement inhibitors that bind upstream of factor H may be more specific and effective than those targeting C5. You et al. also note that their data may help explain why only a minority of COVID-19 patients develop life-threatening organ failure. Other complement-driven diseases often have underlying gene variants that impair the ability of endothelial cells to protect themselves from complement-mediated injury. Perhaps some of the patients with severe COVID-19 also harbor variants in complement regulatory genes, including factor H, which is currently being investigated. In an accompanying commentary, Kulkarni and Atkinson from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis note that this team has provided research with high therapeutic potential. They also point out several caveats to be considered in future work. For example, Factor D is only one of the several proteases that can facilitate complement activation by the alternative pathway in vivo. It is also known that a very low amount of factor D is capable of activating DAP. Hence, a better choice to target in the AP for inhibition may be C3, factor B, or properdin, which augments the AP's feedback loop. And while inhibiting complement activation proximal to C5 is attractive, Many of the proteins in the early phase of the complement cascade, such as C3 and factor B, are part of the acute phase response and may play an important role in the initial control of the infection. Probably the most critical consideration is that the study was primarily conducted using an in vitro model system. Thus, this potential novel mechanism of SARS-CoV-2-mediated complement activation 
will need to be rigorously examined in in vivo model systems of SARS-CoV-2-mediated immunopathogenesis. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.